Paul talked about, hey, we would go places and preach in great weakness. And I was very discouraged having to sit down so much teaching this weekend and contemplate preaching sitting down. And then somebody reminded me before Sunday school of Matthew 5, 2 and 1. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saw the crowds. He went on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to men. He opened his mouth and began to teach. So I may be sitting down teaching before we're done, but I'll start here because I like to move around when I'm preaching. And one thing I want to do before going into the text is just how thankful Caroline and I are for the time we've had the privilege of spending with you all. The conference was one run in a wonderful way. You have been exceedingly kind to us. We've enjoyed so much getting to know many of you, especially those who are serving you in ministry. And it's just been a very delightful time for us and a very joyful memory. And it's such a privilege to be invited to participate as I have. Today, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. And there's some irony in what I'm about to do, and that we've been doing a family conference, and we're going to talk about a woman who openly defies her husband, goes behind his back, spends a bunch of money, and she's a hero. If that doesn't get your interest, I don't know what will. And for we who are complementarians, who acknowledge that men are leaders in the church and in the home. I think it's also important for us to recognize that in the Bible, there are examples of strong women who, to the glory of God, do hard things. And that is one of my favorite women in the Bible is Abigail. And when I, I love preaching from Old Testament narrative. And when I preach from Old Testament narrative, there are three things I want to do. And this may even help you as you read through the Old Testament. I'm on a Bible reading program. I go through the whole Bible Every year, and as you read the Old Testament, there are three things I try to do. First and foremost, I want to understand what's going on. And today, we have a great story. Uh, It's exciting. And yet, we also have to understand things about the Old Covenant, about the culture at that time, in order to understand from God's perspective what's happening and what's happening from the standpoint of the author and those participating. There's a second thing I want to do, and that is to apply it to us today. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so, what happened in the Old Testament, these events that occurred for the Old Covenant community, they are meant to be instructive for us in the New Covenant that we could know how we can live to the glory of God. Now, that too will take some interpretation. For example, when is it right for a wife to go against her husband, spend a bunch of money behind his back? I would say those are exceptional circumstances. But there are really valuable principles here in terms of listening to admonishment, how to correct someone who is wrong in a loving and gentle way. And then there's a third aspect, and actually you just sang it to me, or to God ultimately, and that is show us Christ. And in Luke 24, verse 27, the risen Jesus, actually verse 26, he said to the disciples who did not yet get it, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. And so in this passage, you know, the story of Abigail, we want to understand how this fits into God's great story of redemption, which is what the Bible is ultimately all about, and to see where we might see pictures or 
illustrations that point us to the gospel. Now, the context in 1 Samuel chapter 25 is that Saul is king. But Saul has failed as king, and God has already announced through Samuel that Saul's kingdom is going to end. And the prophet Samuel has anointed David as the future king. Now, Saul being on the throne, Saul has a big army. Saul is trying to kill David. And in the context here, David is running around all over the place, now in Judea, trying to stay away from Saul and waiting for the Lord to bring about his kingdom. And in chapters 24, 25, and 26, in this time where David's being chased around, David faces three temptations. And the temptations in chapter 24 and 26 are almost identical. And that is David gets a chance to sneak up on King Saul and kill him. But he doesn't do it because he, he wants to honor the Lord's anointed one. And he doesn't want to take revenge on his enemy. He wants to leave that to God. And so he passes the test in chapters 24 and 26. But in chapter 25, he's tempted by this guy Nabal. And Nabal offends him. And in chapter 25, he's on verge of failing the test because he wants to kill not just Nabal, but everything and everybody belonging to Nabal because Nabal insults him. And God sends someone to keep David from falling into the temptation. He sends a woman. He sends Abigail. And for that, he is thankful and we can be thankful. So, beginning, and I'm going to kind of work my way through the passage bit by bit rather than reading the whole thing at once. It's a long passage. Beginning in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 25, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about that while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. So you meet Nabal and his wife, and this is David operating in the southern part of Judea. And Nabal is a man of wealth and of importance. The assets he possesses in terms of animals seems to be about half of that of Job. But actually he has something Job didn't have, and that is a great wife. And, uh, but Nabal is characterized as being a man of, uh, who is harsh, and evil, and his name, we'll see later, actually means fool. Now you think, what mother would name her son Nabal, fool? And But in the Bible, a couple of things. One is names do have significance. He deserves this name. And, but also sometimes names are given later in life. Uh, I remember one time when I, my family went to a rodeo, and there was a rodeo clown called Slim, but he was not. He was very wide. But... <laughs> I don't think his mother named that, but that's just kind of the nickname that got put on him. Now, when he's called a foolish man, it, it doesn't mean that he was stupid. He probably viewed himself as a very intelligent and shrewd businessman. His foolishness is really in relation to God, as we will see. He is harsh. He is greedy. He's like a lot of businessmen and women in our day, actually. And he is very proud. But then he's married to Abigail, a woman It says she is a, a woman of wisdom. She's a beautiful woman. Now you'll have a second question. Why would she marry him? You know, they'd meet on eopposite.com. Uh, well, my guess would be it was an arranged marriage for some reason, and she is stuck in a hard marriage. So, continuing in verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. 
So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that we were in, they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find to ha- at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David sends emissaries to Nabal, and it's the time of shearing sheep. It's a festive time. It's like Thanksgiving or something. It's, it's a time that would be a celebration. Later we're going to see Nabal throws a big party. And so David sends a little delegation to Nabal, and my time in the Middle East actually helps me to get more of a picture of this, because even in the business context, you'd have a boss who's kind of like a sheikh, and he's there in his white robes, and you, know, he, you kind of get an audience with him, and you ask for stuff, even in the business realm, much less in the political realm in Saudi Arabia. And so here are these guys, and they get an audience with Nabal, who's a man of importance, and the point is, it's, it, we know you're going to have a big party, we know it's a time of festival and celebration, and it's a time for sharing. And David, with his 600 renegades who are running away from Saul, uh, he's describing how we've been in the neighborhood, we've been in the area, you've got all these sheep out there, you've got the herds out there, and later the, sh- the servants of Nabal will say his little, David's little army was like a wall protecting us. There are Philistines, other bad guys around, and so they've, they've not pillaged, they've not taken anything, and so what should Nabal do? Well, Middle Eastern hospitality would say when you have a guest, especially an honored guest, you are generous with them. You know, we can read this in our culture and almost look like David's a mafia guy wanting a bit of production money. It's more like you have gotten great service in a restaurant and you give a tip. David has given outstanding service. He's, been, he's shown kindness. David even comes and three times, you know, peace to you, peace to your house, uh, peace, peace, peace. And there's one other aspect of this. David is no ordinary man. Who is David? He is the anointed of the Lord. He is the anointed of the Lord who will one day be king. He is the anointed of the Lord who is a picture of the coming Messiah, the anointed one. And it reminds me in the New Testament when Jesus sends emissaries to the villages in Galilee offering peace. And remember what happens. Those villages that receive the anointed one through his emissaries are blessed. And those who reject the anointed one through his emissaries are cursed. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Well, what's Nabal going to do? What should he do? He should kiss the sun. He should honor the anointed one. But he's a fool. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So Nabal had different options, right? He could have been generous. That's the right thing to do. He could have given some gifts. Say, thank you very much. Here's a little bit. He did the one really wrong thing, is he insults David through his representatives. He belittles David. Well, who is David? 
It's actually the same term that's used of Doeg, the Edomite, one of Saul's servants earlier. Um, there's no acknowledgement of the great deliverances David has made by killing Goliath and defeating the Philistines and even the kindness that Nabal himself has uh, received from David. And, and, and Nabal's rudeness is exceedingly foolish again. Uh, he had the opportunity of a lifetime to bless the one whom God has chosen. And again, I'm thinking of Psalm 2. You, you, you kiss the son, lest he be angry. And if you insult the son, bad things are going to happen to you. And so, in his foolishness, he insults the anointed one. And even in the context, this guy's got 700 warriors. <laughs> even if, you're, if you don't get the religious thinking here, just logic would say this is not a good move. Verse 12, so David's young men retraced their way and they went back and they came and told him according to these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. And each man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed behind with the baggage. And you can look at verses 21 and 22. David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man is in the wilderness. So that nothing was... Missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned evil for good. May God do to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. And there's a little bit of, there's some interesting things in the text that don't jump out at you, but he had said, peace, 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 earlier. Now he's saying, sword, sword, sword. David is angry, and he makes a vow to slaughter not just Nabal, but all of his menfolk. And he is vengefully determined to return evil for the evil he has received. And it's interesting because the very temptation he resisted with Saul, who also had done much evil for all the good that David did for Saul, in chapters 24 and 25, in this case, David is ready to kill, again, not just Nabal, but everything and everybody connected to Nabal. He is in temptation. And he needs to be delivered from evil. And the Lord preserves him. He's, he's like the city whose wall is broken down, as the proverb says. He has no control over his spirit. And now we have Abigail, continuing in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, and all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can talk to him. So, by the means of this servant, who is part of God's good plan here, the servant rushes to Abigail, and this kind of tells me that this is probably not the first time Nabal has gotten the family into trouble. He knows there's no point... The servant knows there's no point trying to reason with his master. So he runs to his wise master's wife. And he accurately sizes up the threat. You know, he, he knows the context in which he's living. And he sees the insult. And, and even though he didn't hear David say, he says, this guy's going to come and kill us all. And, and so Abigail gets the message. We continue in verse 18. Then Abigail hurried. And she took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on the donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. 
And it came about as she was riding her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountains, that behold, David and his men were coming down towards her, so she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain, I've, I've already I've guarded this men in the wilderness. We've already read those verses. But he's made this vow, may God do to the enemies of David and more, if by morning there's such much as one male left of those who belong to Nabal. So Abigail, and actually, actually with Abigail, more than one times it says of Abigail, she hurries. And in this case, there's dramatic urgency. And you, you've got this picture where David has got his men and they are marching fast to go wipe out all the Abig- all of uh, Nabal's family and servants and animals. And here's Abigail. And if she didn't hurry, she'd have missed him. But just in time, she, you know, because she rushed, she meets him uh, to try to prevent this calamity occurring to her family. But she doesn't take the time to tell her husband what she's up to. Is that okay? I think so. So we continue in verse 23. And as she approaches David, verses 23 to 31, it's one of the longest speeches in the Bible by a woman. It's also brilliant. It is a brilliant example of how to appeal to someone in authority it's a, it just, the way she speaks to David is just a masterpiece, and we should appreciate it. So, continuing in verse 23, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, and fell on her face before David. She bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you, and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hands, now then let the enemies and all who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgressions of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as with the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So Abigail approaches David very respectfully and humbly, even though she is a noble woman. Uh, she bows before him. She asks permission to be heard. And then it's interesting because what she does here in verse 28, please forgive the transgressions of your maidservant. She didn't do anything wrong. What's she doing? She's taking the blame of her husband upon herself. She is saying... And, Count me as guilty. I saw an illustration of this one time in our church many years ago in California where we had a situation in which a woman who was helping to handle our finances discovered a clever way to embezzle about $12,000. 
And we finally figured it out, and we caught her. And one thing we required her to do was to make public confession to the church, along with a promise to repay. But when this was done, her husband stood next to her. And he too sought forgiveness from the congregation, as he is one with her. And in their union together, and in tears, they sought confession, and the church forgave, and they ultimately were able to repay. But uh, the, the solidarity of the two being one, and, and what he did affects her, and in a sense represents her. But now she is saying, even though I am innocent, let the blame fall on me. But then, as there is blame, what else does she do? And I'm going to use a big word. She wants to propitiate David's wrath. You know what the word propitiation means, right? It's to turn away anger. David is angry, and she's brought a ton of food to turn away his anger. Now, I'm not saying that Abigail is a type of Christ, but I will say that what's happening here illustrates Christ for us in the sense that he being innocent, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And that he made a great payment, not just of some food, but he made the payment of his life, dying on the cross to turn away God's just wrath from us as Abigail paid a penalty, paid a price to propitiate the anger of David. And I find that to be, if nothing else, an illustration that makes me think. As she speaks to him, she's trying to know, so he's, she's trying to say why he should do this. And she, again, you look at this and she basically says, my husband is a worthless fool. She, she's not lying when she says that. That's what he really is. And, and she acknowledges his, his foolishness. But then she is appealing to him, and it's kind of like in verse 26, but the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood. And, and she's giving glory to God. She says, it's, I got here just in time. Because you would have done something terrible that would have been a stain on your kingdom for the rest of your life. And thanks be to God that the Lord has stopped you until now. And she, as she presents this gift, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord. You know, so she's saying, may your wrath be propitiated. Take my little sacrifice and turn away your anger. And then she moves on. And the next part of this is one of the most incredible things in the whole book of 1 Samuel. When she's acknowledging that David is fighting on behalf of the Lord. And that God will protect him. He doesn't need to take his own revenge. Uh, it's just you know, Jesus on the cross, when being reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And so, should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord will be bound up in the bundle of the living. God will protect you. God will feed you. And then this language about the enemies are going to be slung out from a sling. Well, that word sling has already occurred in this. Where did it occur? David and Goliath, right? He used a sling. And so you're, you're, God is the one who's going to sling away your enemies or like destroy them as happened to Goliath. And then the end of verse 28 is the most amazing. The beginning, sorry, it's the middle of verse 28. The Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. This is the same language that's used in 2 Samuel in the Davidic Covenant. You see, Abigail knows who David is. He is the future king. And that through him there will be an everlasting house, which we know culminates in Christ. 
whatever Samuel had done in anointing David, some people know. She knows. And she believes. You are the anointed one. You are the king. And you are the king whose line will last forever. Therefore, live up to that calling. That's an admonishment. Trust God to avenge you. And trust God that as He will protect you from those who pursue you, and He will make you ruler over all of Israel. In verse 30, the Lord, when He does to the Lord all the good He has spoken concerning you, says, when, when that happens, and, and God does it, not you, that's, you know, remember what you did in chapter 24 and you're going to do in chapter 26. It's the Lord who will avenge you in good time. So don't taint your reign. And then, look at the very last phrase. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Does that make you think of anybody in the New Testament? Did somebody say, remember me? Who said that? Deep on the cross. There's some really significant parallels here. When Jesus was on the cross, did He look like a king? He did not. He looked like He'd lost. He looked defeated. And yet there was one man, I think Calvin said that one day, the thief on the cross was the best theologian in the whole world. Because he saw a king who would reign forever and he believed that as he trusted in Jesus, that Jesus could forgive a sinner like him and could, that he could be along with Jesus and reign one day. He believed that in the resurrection, essentially. Amen. In a similar way, as Abigail looks at David, the opinion polls were not going his way. David had a little group of men. Saul had the whole army. Nabal was betting on the obvious favorite. He didn't want to make Saul mad when David is a rebel. He's a little pipsqueak rebel. I'm going to, you know, the obvious thing is to, to be on Saul's side. But Abigail, through the eyes of faith, sees the future king. And she expresses her faith. And she wants to be part of his future kingdom. And if you read ahead, she will be. She had faith when virtually no one else did. So we continue in verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord of God of Israel lives... He who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would have been not left at Nabal until morning light so much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, what David does here is something really amazing. There are other examples in the Bible where men made vows. Bad vows. Can you think of anything? Remember Jephthah? And he says, whatever comes out of my house, I'm going to devote to the Lord. It's his daughter. But he keeps the vow. You think of Herod after the dancing and the, you know, what would you want? I vow to give you anything up to half my kingdom. Well, I'd like John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he goes through with it. Okay, now let's look at David. David made a vow to kill every single member of Nabal's family. It was a wicked and sinful vow. And instead of being like other rulers who are proud and say, well, I made the vow, I can't go back. David broke the wicked vow. He made that vow in front of his men. It kind of could lose face when you made this promise in front of everybody that you're going to do something and then you back down. 
What does that show about David? It shows some humility in his character, right? That he would let a woman rebuke him, and he would accept the rebuke and go back on his vow so he would not be like Jephthah or Herod. He listens to her counsel. He thanks God for sending her. And he blesses her for her wisdom, her discernment. He receives her propitiatory gift. His wrath is turned away. Just one little application. I'll make more later. If you've made a foolish promise to marry Nabal, break the promise. (laughs) Once you're married, it's another matter. If you've made a bad commitment, sometimes the most godly thing to do is to get out of it. We continue in verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything until morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, and his wife told him these things, his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. And a few days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Now, it's kind of interesting. Nabal holds a royal feast fit for a king. Were there any kings around that should have been invited, you think? (laughs) This is the feast he should have held for David. I think it's also significant that that Abigail is able to give away donkey loads full of food and provision, and Nabal didn't even miss it. He could have so easily done the right thing. He could have so easily responded to the invitation to honor the anointed one. And yet he, in his folly, holds his royal feast for his friends like a fool he gets drunk. And then when Abigail comes around and tells him what she has done, the Lord strikes him dead. The very thing that Abigail had said, I don't think she told him to kill him. I don't think she could have anticipated that was going to be the result. But that is what God did. And the whole point, she had said, the Lord will avenge you, David. And the Lord does avenge. And again, back to the bigger picture. This is what happens to the one who curses the anointed one of God. This is what happens to the one when God has set his hand on, on David as the anointed one, the future king through whom all true kings will come and the king of kings ultimately would come. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Like the parable of the rich fool. This is what happens to people who love their riches and don't love God. But David recognizes as we continue that vengeance belongs to God. So continuing in verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So the story has a remarkable, some would say a happy ending. Uh, As David recognizes that God has delivered him through Abigail, he then proposes marriage and uh, he sees her as a worthy wife, a worthy queen. She quickly and humbly accepts 
And when she accepts, again, at that time, she's choosing to be with David and his fugitive band of men who are still being chased by Saul and his big army because she has faith that the future lies with David, that he will be king, the very things she said. And again, she hurries. So, I want to make a few applications before I I close today. And one would be, again, I will affirm very strongly my belief. The Bible teaches the church should be led by men as deacons and elders, that men should preach, that men should be leaders in the home. But I also affirm that the Bible commends strong women in the right place. And in this era, you have other strong women who shape history. You have uh, Hannah. You have earlier Ruth and Naomi. Uh, when you look at uh, Abigail, when she says, you behold the maiden to, to wash my disciples. Sorry, that's another person who washed feet. Uh, but behold, you know, your maidservant to wash the feet of uh, my Lord's uh, servants. Mary, when the angel came to her, says, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. She had faith like that. I also see from this that God may even sometimes use a woman to reprove a man. Actually, it happens to me from time to time with my wife. There's nothing in the Bible saying a woman can't do that. I've had other women in the congregation over the years uh, correct, admonish, challenge in a respectful way as she did. A woman can be a wise theologian and a wise counselor. Some of the sharpest people in the world I've ever known. Women. Um, and I think the way she does it is also exemplary. Those of you who are studying counseling, you've heard Galatians 6. Brethren, if someone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Now, the Bible teaches how we're to correct each other. Sometimes we don't correct each other until we're really angry and we just can't stand anymore. And then we, well, boy, I'm so mad at you because you did this. That is not what the Bible says correction should be. Correction is when you go to someone because you love them and you're trying to help them. You're restoring them. It's like mending a torn net. You're, you're coming in love. You're coming with gentleness, bearing the, you know, exhibiting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you'll never see a better example than her. She's respectful. She's gentle. And, and as she does so, she turns David away from his sin and she puts the focus on the Lord. David is seeing everything horizontally. Mean, Nabal, mean, bad guy, get him. And she says, the Lord has restrained you and the Lord is going to make you king and the Lord will avenge you. And so she turns his eyes away from Nabal to the Lord. And then David does what he should do and he receives that admonishment. She even uses the, the promise of David's future and even his progeny's future. Uh, there's another side of the application would be, how do you do when you're in David's place? Do you receive correction like David does here? Remember, we read about Nabal. It says he won't listen to anybody. There are even men in churches who won't listen to anybody. The fact that God has made you the head of your family doesn't mean you have the right to be like Nabal. Your wife is the best helper you have. The proverb says, She does you good, not evil, all the days of your life. That the teaching of wisdom is on her lips. Now, it should be done the way Abigail did it, but we should be willing as husbands, as pastors, as leaders, as fathers. Proverbs 9.8 says that if you rebuke a scoffer, he will hate you, but if you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. 
David, in the right way, loved Abigail and thanked God for Abigail who sent him to correct him. Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Proverbs 15.12 says, A scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. When people correct you, is your temptation to become defensive, angry? Is your temptation to counterattack? But Nabal did all this stuff to me! But you're not so great yourself. May God make us men and women of grace when someone comes to us that we would listen and even thank God for them. The proverb also says in Proverbs 15.31, He who listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Do people in your family feel safe bringing correction to you? Or are they intimidated by you because they fear the reaction they might get? You can either be like David or Nabal. Up to you. There's another tough question that I'm not going to be able to answer exhaustively. Is, and that would be, is there ever a time when a wife in the 21st century church needs to act like Abigail? You know, the Bible says these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And I want to be careful not to go to one of two extremes. Um, I think some women could misuse this passage and say anytime they disagree with their husband that they're going to take it into their own hands, call him a fool, and do what they want. That's not what the passage is saying. The Bible says wives submit to your husbands. It even says if they're disobedient, you try to win them without a word by your behavior as they observe your chaste and respectful manner. But I do think sometimes happen, things happen in families where the wife either has to admonish the husband or has to get away. There are men who are angry and they are abusive to their children and harm their children. And the wife has to do what's necessary to make those children safe, even if it's over the angry rejection of a husband who doesn't want them to go to the pastors or the authorities. A wife who herself is being abused, is being harmed. I'm not just saying ordinary marital conflict. I'm saying wicked, vile, neighborish foolishness has the right to be safe and to get away. Uh, I've counseled in cases where you have a man who is out of control, angry. He's driving like a maniac and he stops and the wife grabs their toddler out of the car seat and gets out of the car because she's afraid he's going to kill them. And he's yelling at her, you submit to me, you get in. Because sadly, some men, some Nabals know Ephesians 5.22 and they misuse that demanding that their wives submit when they're demanding their wives submit to foolishness that endangers the family. And there are complicated situations. You, you know, when you, if you feel you're in this situation, I think it's good to seek wise counsel from godly older women like Titus chapter 2 to seek wisdom from your pastors and your elders. But there are situations in where a woman needs to be Abigail. And we as the church need to protect women. And in this case, her whole family was going to die if she didn't do something. And I think she did the right thing. Another application is that You should give thanks to God like David did when God keeps you from doing wrong. That kind of goes along with receiving correction. But, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. And how thankful we should be because we are all weak. How thankful we should be when there's a brother or a sister who turns us away from our sin. And maybe even in ways we don't know, just to be thankful. We are weak. We are vulnerable. David, who did well in chapters 24 and 26, was about to do terribly in chapter 25. And the Lord uses many means to deliver us from the sin that otherwise we would fall into. And for that, we should be thankful.
Maybe one day when we're in heaven, we will marvel at the ways God protected us. And one other little application would be that we can trust God to bring justice to those who do evil. If you've been the victim of abuse or crime, you've been frustrated because the family or the church or the government haven't done what they needed to do, ultimately, vengeance belongs to God, and you can entrust that judgment to Him. And that's comforting. God's attributes are all good. His just wrath is a good one in the sense that we don't have to worry about taking our own revenge when people wrong us. God avenged Nabal, and God will bring justice to the wicked, and we can rest in that. Well, there's one other thing I said I wanted to do. I've done it a little bit in terms of, you know, get the big picture of what God is doing. And one question would be, well, who is the big hero in 1 Samuel 25? You could say, in a sense, Abigail is the heroine, heroine. But even David recognizes in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. God is the hero of 1 Samuel 25. In that he loves David enough to send Abigail to rescue David from doing evil, to prepare him to be a good and righteous king. Well, where do we see Christ? I've tried to point out a few places already in terms of kind of a picture of substitution and propitiation, which I'm not saying are types, but they illustrate certainly what Christ has done for us. Um, The one I would want to apply to you last of all today would be that in the same way that David, who is the anointed one of God, sent emissaries offering peace to Nabal, that Jesus Christ, who is the anointed king, the son of David, sends emissaries to all the world offering peace. Today, through me, through your church, through your pastors, Jesus Christ offers peace to people who were foolish. We were all foolish. And if you will receive Him, if you will confess your sinfulness and believe on Him, He will give you His peace. He will forgive your sin. He will make you His son and His daughter, His bride. That's the ultimate picture. He sends His emissaries offering peace. And yet the reaction will be one or the other. There are some of you who, like Nabal, reject Christ. Who is Jesus that He should tell me what to do? I'm just fine by myself. Well, one day, if that's your attitude, what happened to Nabal will happen to you. You have the opportunity today to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to do what Abigail did, that she knew David was the true king whom God had appointed, and she submitted herself to him. And Jesus Christ is the son of David, the true king, whom God has appointed to reign over all the world. And if you would but bow the knee to him, believe on him, he will save you. In Titus chapter 3, we're told in verse 3, we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our time in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were all once foolish, 
Christ has come into the world to save Nabals like us. Don't turn him away like Nabal did. Believe on him, and he will save you. And you can join in his company. It will ultimately be triumphant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for things that happened thousands of years ago which are practical to us today. I pray today that if there are women who are struggling in hard marriages with men who are foolish, that you would give them wisdom of when to follow and submit and when they need to do things necessary to keep them and their families safe. I pray that we as a church would protect women and children and those who are suffering. I pray, O God, for many of us who have been foolish, that you would give us grace to repent. I pray that you would also help us to trust you when others wrong us and entrust judgment to you. I pray with thanksgiving how good it is that Christ has offered peace. Help us to joyfully receive him, to honor him, that we may share in his kingdom and his glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of response, and just want to say two things. One, there's a prayer room over here. Folks will be there if you don't know the Lord, and uh, you want to turn from being uh, Nabal and uh, be saved. Someone would be there, be happy to open the Word of God. The second thing I would say to you um, is whether it's your pastors or whether it's our biblical counseling uh, center, if uh, if something touched your heart this morning or there was a specific situation, you can set up an appointment with Mark or see any of the pastors and just to remove any temptation. I have no idea what this brother was going to preach this morning. And if you're sitting here this morning like people were this last week and coming up to him going, you just described my scenario. He doesn't know any of your scenarios. I haven't shared anything with him and I didn't know what he was going to say today. And so that tells me that the Lord may be working in providence. Um, So if that's you, uh, we would be happy to help you uh, in any way. With the Word of God, it is sufficient. You need nothing else. And the Spirit of God, the Word of God and the Spirit of God can transform lives. Amen? Amen. Just stand, let's sing. We're going to sing, O Great God. for sharing the word with us. Thank you, Carolyn, for coming. Look forward to seeing you in a few months. Uh, if the Lord doesn't come back, which that would be fine with me, I'd be happy to miss preaching in the women's conference and everything to see Jesus. So, Remember, no service uh, tonight. And so you're welcome to hang around and, uh, and fellowship. All right, Father, we love you. We praise you. And we ask you to dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.